Well, good morning, brothers. Wakey, wakey, there we go, very good. Um, we're going to be continuing on with 2 Timothy this morning, so if you wouldn't mind turning to 2 Timothy, uh, we're on chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verse 14 through the end of the chapter. I'll read, pray, preach. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God about, against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Humanaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the, uh, on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the various lessons of scripture we've had today that have taught us already so much about you and uh, continuing just thinking even off the back of yesterday's sermon, some of the uh, um, hymns uh, that we've uh, said together and some of the readings that we've had about uh, judgment and the need um, for you to come and help us. We pray that you would indeed come and help us um, this morning that as we reflect on this passage and what it means for us to be living uh, between the coming, first coming and second coming of Christ, that we would be people who uh, would endure in, in this particular way. So give us insight and wisdom into this passage and a transformation by your Holy Spirit in our hearts that we might live for you and glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it doesn't uh, take long in the Christian life to encounter theological debates, does it? In fact, it doesn't take long at first year of more college to encounter the history of theological debates, and there are plenty to cover. That's why we give you four years of it, church history. And I would expect that it won't take long when you finish your four years of more college and get out there into church land that you will encounter various theological debates in not a very long period of time. I imagine these things will uh, be on our minds and hearts quickly. And the question I want to ask us this morning is, how are you going to be a worker of the word in those situations? How are you going to be a worker 
of the word in those situations. And I'm not talking about just little minor debates, little debates about things that come and go, ephemeral things that don't really interest me that much, like ministry philosophy. I'm not as interested in those sort of things. I'm talking about major things, more important things, big things, things that have been, I remember encountering when I first went into the ministry when someone said to me that because I didn't hold to a literal seven-day creation, which I have no problem with, by the way, that I, I had a wrong understanding of the, 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 the um, reliability of Scripture, the, the, the truthfulness of Scripture, and I was holding very loosely to the Gospel as a result. Or other things that I've encountered uh, in my ministry, that uh, having not been able to speak in tongues, that there was something deficient in my Christianity, and maybe I actually wasn't a Christian. I remember hearing these things. Or intergenerational sin, and actually wrestling with my sin, and not being able to, be able to trace it back to various spiritual influences in my ancestry that I'd not understood something of vital importance in the Christian life. Major debates of some serious significance I remember encountering rather quickly and I'm sure that if you haven't you will too. How are you going to be a worker of the word? Will you flee theological debate completely like it's a plague? Will you run to the hills? Or will you be all over theological debates like a rash? You can't get enough of it. See, I wonder if the phrase warned them against quarrelling about words, I wonder if that sits quite comfortably with you as you read this passage, that those uh, words leapt out at you and thought, yep, that's the one I'm going to take away this morning. You can imagine um, someone out there who read that part of Scripture and think, yes, those Sydney Anglicans, they're always squabbling about words. I wish they'd listen to that verse. Or maybe there's a different phrase that leapt out at you. The phrase, correctly handle the word of truth. Maybe that's more your cup of tea. You can imagine someone out there reading that part and thinking, yes, those liberals, they're always playing fast and loose with the truth. I wish they just rightly divided the Bible. On the surface of things, those two phrases appear a little bit odd together. Perhaps a little bit contradictory even. Don't quarrel about words, but correctly handle the word. Hmm, how do you do both? Don't quarrel about words, but correctly handle the word. Well, I want to suggest to us this morning that Paul is teaching us about uh, this, that being a worker of the word is not only about having the right answer, but it's also about having the right character. That being a worker of the word is not only about having the right answer, but it's about being of the right character. What do I mean? Well, having just uh, exhorted Timothy to endurance, be strong in the grace of that is in Christ Jesus, Paul gives him a live, hot, present theological issue that requires some endurance, some serious, intentional ministry reflection. I just put out there for Simon and Archie who are in my gaze, and for the rest of you too. And Paul gives Timothy three imperative commands in verses 14 to 18. He gives him the guts of the situation in verses 19 to 21, and then three imperative commands at the end. In those final verses, and just as a nerdy excursus, it's really interesting. There's a kind of parallel with those three um, kind of commands there. There's a bit of a negative, positive, negative, negative, positive, negative, and they, they, they even, I've got a, a mate who's totally into chiasms. He sees chiasms everywhere like it's the matrix. And I was even thinking you could do a chiasm with this passage, but I thought I'd leave you in peace. <laughs> Nevertheless, in those three major movements, the first set, the guts, the second set, we've got three blocks. Holding, uh, remain holding on a God's word in the first section. 
remain holy in God's household in the second, and remain humble in God's service in the third. Holding on to God's word, holy in God's household, humble in God's service. Elsewhere, Paul says he demolishes arguments and he warns against hollow and deceptive philosophies. Take every thought captive to Christ. Paul is not against a bit of serious theological argy-bargy. But here, it's as if he's saying being a minister of God's word is not only about having the right answer, it's about having the right character. The first thing we notice in this passage is that there are words worth holding on to and words worth not holding on to. The words worth holding on to are these things, he says right at the start. What are these things? Well, certainly the trustworthy saying has just come before that. Certainly also in 2 Timothy, the, the phrase, what you've heard from me, that apostolic teaching. Certainly in 1 Timothy, these things comes up a whole lot. And again, it's this apostolic teaching that Paul's been downloading plenty of into Timothy. Hold on to it, mate. So Paul says, verse 15, that you should do your best to be an approved worker of these things, an approved gospel worker, a right handler of the word of truth. Now, the idea of doing your best, it's basically the same as make every effort that Paul says a few times in this letter. Make every effort to come and see me. Make every effort to come and do it before winter. Make every effort. Work hard. Do this, please. Sure, this means in terms of holding on to these things, working hard on your exegesis. Sure, it means uh, working hard on your theology. Sure, it means working hard on your application of the word of truth. Rightly dividing the truth, uh, the word of truth means all of that, but it also means holding on to these truths of scripture when it's unpopular, when it's unfashionable, when it's under fire. There's going to be godless chatter that you're going to need to avoid. And the truthful word, the word of truth, the truthful word, full of truth, is in direct contrast to the empty words, the kenophonious, the kind of kenosis, the pouring out words, the empty words. It's a full word and an empty word. And these words are so empty of truth that they're godless. In fact, they're so godless that indulging them will just advance more and more ungodliness. And this problem is, in fact, so dangerous that it spreads quietly, painfully, awfully, like gangrene. I've never had gangrene. I don't really want to have gangrene. But I could imagine it would be a terrible, terrible thing. Paul gives those examples, Humaneos and Philetos, who've indulged themselves in these ungodly words. And now they're spreading their poison around. Timothy presumably knows who they are. Paul calls them by name to Timothy. Well, what's their false teaching? What is it that's going on? Verse 18 says that they've wandered away from the truth and they say the resurrection's already taken place. That seems like a bit of a weird thing to believe, doesn't it? <laughs> to be honest, <clears throat> I'm not entirely sure of what's going on here. I don't have my head wrapped around every single bit of the background. I think it's, it's hard to sort of nail down. It's probably something like they've twisted some words of Paul's. Maybe Paul's words like, um, you know, maybe you know, speaking about dying with Christ and being raised with Christ. That kind of language that Paul uses a lot of. Maybe they've twisted some of those words and come up with a bit of a strange denial of a 
future bodily resurrection. Maybe they've squabbled and quarreled over a few words about the resurrection and stopped holding on to these trustworthy sayings. The things you've heard Paul say, these things, and they've stopped holding on to, in other words, the word of truth. Therefore, with all of our live issues over things like homosexuality, exclusive claims of Christ, the saving significance of faith alone, the list could go on, we really need to be remaining holding on to God's word. I hope you're seeing it's not just an intellectual exercise of correctly handling the word of truth. Handling the scriptures is a deeply spiritual exercise. In fact, theology is a spiritual activity that properly begins with prayer. We might even say that theology is a liturgical activity. Which is why, if we want to remain holding on to God's word, we need to remain holy in God's household. And in verses 19 to 21, Paul explains what really happened with Phimeneus and Philotos. Though they seemed to be part of God's household, they were not truly in God's household. Paul speaks about God's solid foundation in verse 19 and the master's house in verses 20 to 21. It's the same reality he spoke of in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, which reads, God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. That's to say, not all who look like they're part of God's household are truly in God's household. As the Anglican 39 Articles puts it, in the visible church, the evil be ever mingled with the good. And that's why Paul quotes Numbers 16 verse 5, alluding to the story of Korah in the Old Testament. Korah's quarrelling. And he says, the Lord knows who are his. You don't have an election detection device like a little Geiger counter. The Lord knows who are his. And why Paul also speaks about the noble gold and silver vessels in the house and some ignoble wood and clay vessels in the house. And the upshot of it all is for Timothy and for us to make sure we're the right kind of vessel. Do we love being cleansed? Do we love being made holy? Do we love being subservient? to the master of the house? Do we love being servants, really? You know, false teachers have a dead faith which does not love these things, whereas true teachers have a living faith out of which springs a love for them and a desire to be a servant of the master. True teachers know that ministering is actually about being ministered, mastered, Serving is about being a servant. Teaching God's word is about being taught by God's word. Therefore, Paul tells Timothy in verses 22-26 to remain humble in God's service. Again, three imperative commands. The first one, flee the evil desires of youth. Presumably the you know, young men 
temptation of young men to get caught up in theological fights. Think of cage stage Calvinists. I'm sure none of you were like that. Or perhaps think about those <coughs> sins that you commit that maybe bring you lots of shame or anger that makes you lash out strongly against those who might commit the same. Flee the evil desires of youth. Two, pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace out of a pure heart. In other words, something like the opposite of the last one. That is to say, pursue the fruit of the Spirit. Pursue that. That's what you really want. And three, just don't have anything to do with those foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. It's a bit of down-to-earth advice. And I wonder which of those three commands speaks strongly to you today. Flee the desires of youth, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace out of a pure heart, or just don't have anything to do with those foolish and stupid arguments. I'm sure that it applies readily to all of us, maybe more than one. So we've got to remain holding on to God's word, remain holy in God's household, remain humble in God's service. But what about these last few verses? Well, Paul concludes this passage, these concluding verses, they give us this beautiful goal that we can likewise conclude with. It's a goal that sounds reminiscent of a little section in Homer's Iliad. He says, but curb thou the high spirit in thy breast, for gentle ways are best, and keep aloof from sharp contention. That is, according to Paul, instead of quarrelling, have kindness. Instead of resentment against the apparent success of false teachers, have contentment in teaching that word of truth. Instead of angry teaching, have gentle, patient, long-suffering, forbearing instruction. And in all of this, do it so that God would grant those wayward teachers repentance. That God would grant people knowledge of the truth. That God would grant spiritual revival and an escape from the devil that we've heard so much about in our readings today. It's a real danger. And we really want people to flee these things and come back to God. And in fact, this is gospel selflessness that Paul's talking about here. Just reflect for a moment on the kindness of Christ in his life and in his death for us. The contentment of Christ, despite those who attacked him and savaged him. The gentleness of Christ the way he takes our burdens and carries our loads, ultimately at the cross of Christ. Think about why Jesus did all of that. Well, it was to see us one and saved, to see our repentance come, to see our coming and having uh, spiritual revival and knowledge of the truth and escaping from the clutches of the devil. That's why Christ did that. And not only does he do that and make us glad that he's done that, but he provides a beautiful example for us, which Paul commands us to do. In fact, you might even say that Christ was the worker approved by God par excellence and gives us both the motivation and the example to be workers approved by God as well. So part of Timothy's endurance that Paul really wants him to have before Paul goes to be with the Lord Jesus Christ and leaves Timothy to run the church in this sort of way. Part of the endurance there 
is to, it will involve teaching in the context of false teaching. And part of our endurance will be the same. It'll involve that. No doubt some of your ministry will involve teaching in the context of prosperity gospels or the wrathless gospel or the morality-less gospel or whatever less gospel it is that confronts you and I in the next, I don't know how many days and years the Lord gives us. But Paul's teaching us this morning that to be a worker of the word, it's not only about having the right answer, it's about having the right character. And therefore, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, brothers, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Amen.